The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. The word of God speaks to us. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come into life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Danny. Good morning. This, this is a good day. I'm glad to be with you here this morning. Uh, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. Well, thank you, my fan. <laughs> um, the last 11 months, we have been in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, um, and it has been an incredibly helpful time for us as a church. We're going to be continuing this morning in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, looking at the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of the body. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into these verses. Father, we thank you very much for your word. Your word is a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would speak to us clearly from your word this morning. Lord, I ask that, um, that I would be able to articulate this in a way that uh, honors you. And Lord, that, that we would all have ears to hear from you as you speak to us. So Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, a few days ago, a man in England sent me an email asking a question. It popped into my inbox and I, I answered it pretty much immediately. Um, his question was probably answered 10 minutes from the time that he began to type that email. And that type of communication is common to us today, but uh, it hasn't always been that way. A hundred years ago, that man would have needed to sit down with pen and paper and, and write a letter, and then he would need to put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, trot down to the post office, mail it, and then wait, and wait, and wait. 
it would probably take three weeks for that letter to get to me and then another three weeks for my reply um, to get to him. A letter in the U.S. might only take about half that time, but it was still nothing like what we're used to today. Back then, almost none of the roads in the U.S. were paved. And even traveling by rail, it would take a letter um, a week to get from one coast to the other coast. So in 1918, uh, shortly after the end of World War I, the U.S. Postal Service decided to see if they could use airplanes to move the mail around more quickly. So a few tired old military training planes uh, were purchased and the U.S. Airmail Service was, was off and flying. So it's difficult for us to imagine what those early aviators were up against. Uh, there were no navigational aids, there were no beacons, no radios, no GPS, no reliable weather forecasting. So at, at your point of departure, it might be sunshiny, beautiful day, and yet you might be flying directly into violent thunderstorms. There was simply no way to know. Uh, the airplanes were equipped with notoriously inaccurate compasses. And, um, and the only maps that they had were maps that they went and got at the Texaco or the Shell station. You remember these things? You used to be able to get these free at service stations. And, and they were known for a couple of things. One, they were known for really colorful images that, uh, that showed roads and, and rivers and towns. And they were also known for being almost impossible to fold back up the way that they were originally. <laughs> and so can you imagine uh, trying to read this map and figure out where you are on the ground um, flying along at 6,000 feet with an open cockpit biplane with the wind blowing in your face 100 miles an hour? I guarantee you that they didn't get them folded up correctly afterwards. <laughs> Okay, so one of the early airmail routes was, uh, it went 120 miles from Des Moines, Iowa to Omaha, Nebraska. And though there were dirt roads that went from uh, Des Moines to Omaha, it, it, if you just pointed your airplane at Omaha and started flying, you might find that you're not following the road anymore. You might find yourself either north of the road or south of the road off your course. There were unseen forces that were moving you around and those unseen forces were the winds that were aloft. So if you didn't correct for those winds, you might find yourself 15 or 20 miles off course. So the airmail pilots, they learned to look at the road maps, look at the ground and then correct their path so that they would actually reach their destination. Well, I tell you that story this morning because that's the story of the Corinthian church. Those early believers had strong cultural winds that were blowing against them, trying to blow them off course. At the time that this letter was written, the population of Corinth was about 100,000 people, made up mostly of Greeks, of Romans, and of Jews. The Romans worshiped many different gods, and so Corinth was filled with altars to these gods. Um, there were temples to Apollo and a temple to Aphrodite, and they were located in Corinth as well, along with upwards of a thousand temple prostitutes. 
So one in every hundred people that you met in Corinth was employed as a religious sex worker. The culture of that city was filled with wealth, with idol worship, and with deep sexual brokenness. And now these cultural winds had blown that young church off course, first with bad doctrine and now with bad practices. In a few years, this new heresy would be known as Gnosticism. But when this letter was written, it was just a belief system that said that, uh, that spirit okay, and knowledge were good and that our bodies were hopelessly bad. Our bodies were just about worthless. They were corrupt. They were irredeemable. Now, what's confusing about this is that like most heresies, there was actually a grain of truth in there. But when you look at the entire Bible, everything that it has to say, it misses the mark. For example, Jesus had told the Samaritan woman at the well that true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and truth. And if somebody just took that, that one verse and ran with it, they might be able to draw the conclusion that spirit and truth, good, body, bad. Except that, when you again and again in the Bible, it tells us that God is saving us spirit, soul, and body. So we often read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 as a benediction here to close our services. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice that our bodies are included here in what God is sanctifying, which simply means that he's setting our bodies apart as holy. But the Corinthians were buying into a belief system that said that nothing was good or holy about our bodies. And with that assumption, as they connected the dots, they concluded that if the body was so completely bad and irredeemable, then whatever they did with their bodies really didn't matter. So it wasn't a big deal if a man was having an affair with his stepmother, as was described in 1 Corinthians 5, or if a person visited the temple prostitutes, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or if you were causing your brothers and sisters to stumble because of your liberty with what you're eating and drinking, as in chapters 8 and 9, or if you got drunk during the church potluck, as described in chapter 11. In their view, they were just doing those things with their corrupt bodies. So what did you expect? See, what does it even matter? And Paul waded into that heresy with both barrels blazing. He's covered a lot of ground in this letter on many radically different topics. Or has he? Maybe what he's done is chapter by chapter hammered away at this one issue, this one heresy from several different angles. Now in chapter 15, Paul is tackling the misunderstanding that they had of the resurrection and specifically the resurrection of the body. Now to people who had decided that the body was corrupt and irredeemably bad, uh, this had to be fairly shocking and maybe even offensive to them. I think it's interesting to see that in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul first introduces a phrase 
that he'll use again and again in his letters to the churches. And that phrase is the body of Christ, the body of Christ. He tells us and he tells the Corinthians that these believers who saw the body as evil, that they are the body of Christ. See, he's going to the heart of the matter here with people who have no appreciation for the concept of the body. Well, let's look at today's verses from chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So you can almost hear their sarcasm in that question. Okay, Paul, how's this going to work? Uh, just look at the toll that time is taking on the human body. Our hair gets gray and it falls out. Our eyesight and our hearing aren't what they used to be. Our once, once healthy bodies are beginning to wear out. And you're telling me that God is going to resurrect these broken down things and then we're going to be trapped in them for eternity? So Paul shakes his head and he says, you foolish people, you know that when you plant a garden, the seeds that you're planting in the ground look nothing like the plant that comes up. So see, even Jesus had talked about this in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 18, he says, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. So look at his illustration here. So this is a picture of a mustard seed. Got a mustard seed? Yeah. So not very impressive as far as seeds go. I mean, even a watermelon seed is, uh, is bigger than that. But that little mustard seed, when it goes into the ground and it germinates, and then comes up and is fully grown, it becomes a tree that looks more majestic than, much more majestic than the original seed. That's what Paul was saying about the resurrection of the body. We go into the ground one way and then come up completely different, but in some ways still us. Now we'll say more about that in a minute. Then in verse 38 of chapter 15, Paul continues, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So what Paul is saying here is something that would have been obvious and common knowledge to all of his listeners. God has not only designed seeds, to have their own shape and size and purpose, but he's done that with animals as well. The body of a fish is beautifully designed to live in the sea. Remove them from that element and they become a fish out of water, <laughs> which is a proverb that we use to describe someone who is trying to do something that they really aren't equipped to do. Uh, the birds, you know, they have their bodies are streamlined and they are built to gracefully move through the air in ways that man tried to duplicate for hundreds of years. So he also gave us a body that is perfectly designed to do what he called us to do. 
Then in verse 40, Paul continues his discussion. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of stars. For star differ from star in glory. Okay, so now Paul turns his argument from biology to astronomy. Now, forgive me for geeking out here just a little, but astronomy is a passion for me. So if you've ever been out under a really dark sky, maybe in the, in the mountains or in the desert, one of the things you'll see is that not, not only are some stars brighter than other stars, but stars have different colors. Now, Antares, which is um, the brightest star in the, the constellation Scorpius, has a distinctly reddish color. On the other hand, Vega, which is the brightest star in the summer sky, is bright blue. About 100 years ago, two astronomers, Edgnar Hertzsprung and Henry Norris Russell, independently plotted out bright stars on a diagram that became known as the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Now, the stars in the upper left-hand portion there are bright blue, young, hot stars. And then the stars that are down in the right lower portion are much cooler red stars, and they aren't as bright. Now, this is the main sequence of stars, and it's actually the life cycle of a star. They start off full of hydrogen up in the bright blue area, and then as their hydrogen burns up, they move down through the main sequence, and most of them wind up as um, not so bright red stars. You can see our sun there about halfway down the main sequence. So our, our sun is kind of an average sort of star, but God gave us a star, the sun, at just the right temperature for life to flourish on the earth. So here's the amazing thing to me from 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's discussion of the stars. He could have said that stars differ from one another in brightness. Or he could have said that stars differ from one another in color. Uh, the Greek language has both words for color and brightness, so he could have said that. But rather, he used a word that is much richer and much more descriptive. He said that stars differ in glory. And using the word glory says much more about a star. Its brightness, its size, its color, even its importance in the grand scheme of God's purposes. So long before the invention of the telescope or the spectroscope, both of which would be necessary for us to know very much about stars at all, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is instructing the church at Corinth about the resurrection of the body using astronomy that was beyond his understanding. Well, now, having presented his arguments using the examples of biological bodies and stars, Paul continues to the heart of their questions about the resurrection of the body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul uses several words here to describe these bodies that we are currently living and walking around in. 
natural, perishable, weak, and even dishonorable. So, Paul, are you going a little Gnostic on us here? Not at all. All he's doing is describing what we already know, that these bodies that we live in are not what God had designed it to be. They were supposed to be glorious and eternal, but sin has taken its toll. So Adam's original sin, yes, but also the sin that each of us chooses to walk in. So whether you're young now or whether you're getting old, you can see this at work in our physical bodies. And I have to admit that I feel it much more now than I did 20 years ago. See, I didn't used to hurt myself sleeping. Now, somehow or the other, I can do that. Okay? Um, but Paul doesn't leave us there, though. In these same verses, he uses other words to describe our resurrected bodies. Words like imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. See, a spiritual body. I'm not sure that I understand what that is exactly, but it sounds really good. I'm looking forward to it. Um, after his resurrection, Jesus talked with his disciples. He ate dinner with them, uh, and he allowed them to touch his wounds. See, he had a flesh and blood body, but he also walked through locked doors, and he traveled around from place to place in a way that he hadn't before. His resurrected body was, and our resurrected bodies will be, suited to the fully redeemed world that our Father has promised us. Remember, God is not making all new things. God is making all things new. And there is a difference between those. Well, then in verse 45, Paul explains how all this is happening. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So the, the first Adam was the man, Adam, who was created on the sixth day. The last Adam that Paul is talking about here is Jesus. Jesus came and lived that life that all of us were supposed to live, but none of us did. And then he died the death that all of us deserved because of our sin. Then he was raised again on the third day, and he ascended back to the Father. And that moved us and our bodies from the natural, weak, perishable, and dishonorable column to the imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual category. Now, we haven't seen all that happen yet, but our God, who cannot lie, has promised it to us. Well, Paul says here, first the natural, then the spiritual. That's a principle through the whole Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, where was God's temple? Anybody? <laughs> it, was a, it was a stone building in Jerusalem, okay? So where is his temple today? We're it. See, you're looking at it. <laughs> um, over and over, the scripture talks about us as being the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
The Old Testament priests were a family of men who ministered to God on behalf of the people. So who are his priests today? Again, we're it. We're spoken of as a kingdom of priests to our God. First the natural, then the spiritual. So that brings us to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So like our elder brother Jesus, we as a seed go down into death and come up in resurrection life. We've borne the image of Adam. Now we bear the image of Jesus. So what does all of this mean to us in 2023 in Edmond, Oklahoma? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, though our society has a different attitude towards the physical body than they did in Corinth, I think we've wound up in a place that is very similar to theirs. In Corinth, the body was viewed as bad, corrupt, and irredeemable. And because of that, any behavior was permitted um, and was even expected. In our day, the human body has been elevated. It's held high, and physical beauty is, is considered a virtue above almost everything else. And we can see that in the $16 billion a year body sculpting uh, industry and the many websites, magazines, books, and blogs devoted to maintaining and improving our bodies. Probably the most radical expression of this preserve the body at any cost mentality is that upon their deaths, many very wealthy people have had their bodies cryogenically frozen in the hope of a resurrection in the future brought on by science. But this overemphasis on our bodies has taken us in our society to a place of believing along with the Corinthians that any behavior with our bodies is permissible and even to be expected. A beer commercial a few years ago said, you only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can. That sounds a whole lot like 1 Corinthians 15:32: Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, I'd like to say that what's happening in our society, in our culture, isn't affecting us in the church. But that's just not true. Like those early airmail pilots trying to get from Des Moines to Omaha, we too have winds aloft that are working to blow us off course. And like the church in Corinth, those winds are coming from the culture that we live in. The airmail pilots could maintain their heading by comparing the fixed points of reference on the ground, the roads, the towns, and the rivers, to their Texaco roadmaps. By doing that, they could make mid-course corrections that kept them heading in the right direction. As followers of Jesus, we have the Bible, we have the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the counsel of our brothers and sisters in Christ as points of reference. Together, they're the ones that will enable us to navigate this life in such a way that we can run the race that is set before us. So God has given us his word, his spirit, and his church to help us to navigate life. But there's also something else. 
few years after Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Corinth, uh, he wrote them another one. And in that second letter, he said this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So it's okay for us to recognize and admit that our outer self is winding down. That understanding alone should encourage us to invest even more heavily um, in that in, inner, internal, eternal person and in our relationship with God and our relationship with his people, the church. Now, while Paul was still in Corinth, another of the churches that he had planted was also struggling with this concept of the resurrection. So in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul gave those believers six sentences of instruction and comfort concerning Jesus' coming. He tells them that the dead in Christ are going to raise first, and then we who are alive will rise to meet with them. Then he ends that chapter saying this, And so we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. So those words were meant to comfort and to encourage us. So we can look to the future with great hope. And this hope will change everything about how we relate to money, about how we relate to our families, about how we relate to our coworkers, our jobs, how we relate to suffering, really how we relate to everything in life. I remember as a, as a boy when my dad would tell me that we were going to go somewhere special um, as, a, as a typical firstborn, I had questions. So uh, when will we go? Who will be going with us? How long will it take to get there? What are we going to do when we get there? How long will we stay? Um, you know, how long will it take to get home? And, and dad would get this twinkle in his eye and, and he would say, you'll see when we get there, you're going to love it. Okay? And so I would trust him. And, uh, and it was always good. In some very real ways, that's what God is saying to us about the resurrection of our bodies and eternity with him. You'll understand when you get there, you're going to love it. Okay? John wrote in his first epistle, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So those verses tell us that God loves us so much that he has adopted us into his family. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot about what we're, what we're going to turn out to be. Other than that it will be like Jesus and that'll be enough. That becomes our hope. And, and daily, we're, be, we're being made to be more like him. Dad really was right. Um, you know, you're going to understand it when you get there, and you're going to love it. Well, earlier in his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul had written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And what he's doing is he's echoing John there. We really don't know the details about having a resurrected body and spending an eternity with him, but it'll be good. Fifty years ago, a close friend recommended a little book to me that I wasn't very excited about reading. Uh, 
Uh, the book was The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. I'd only been married for a short time, and so reading a book about divorce just didn't sound that good to me, you know. Uh, but he kept leaning on me, and, and so finally one day I decided that I would read it. I uh, sat down and, and began to read. Two and a half hours later, that was all it took for me to read that book, but it, it became my favorite book. Not just my favorite C.S. Lewis book, my all-time favorite book. Lewis has helped me more than, than anyone to stir my imagination, uh, to be excited about what the resurrection and eternity with the Lord could be. Great Divorce is a fantasy. It's about a bus trip from the outskirts of hell to the outskirts of heaven. Lewis is a narrator, so he's the one who's taking the trip and describing to us what he sees. Now, partway through the story, he encounters one of his heroes who had, had been a Christian and a writer on earth. And that man becomes his guide and his teacher. And as they walk through a forest, they see a very great lady and her entourage coming their way. She's so glorious that at first, Lewis mistakes her for Eve, the mother of our whole race. She turns out to be a woman who, in our world, was really nobody in particular, but in heaven, a woman who is greatly honored for the daughter of God that she is. Let me read that passage to us. All down one long aisle of the forest, under the undersides of the leafy branches had begun to tremble with dancing lights. And on earth, I knew nothing so likely to produce this appearance as the reflected lights cast upward by moving water. A few moments later, I realized my mistake. Some kind of procession was approaching us, and the light came from the persons who composed it. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers, though by the standard of our world, each petal would have weighed a hundred pounds, and their fall would have been like the crashing of boulders. Then on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue, came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls on the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever <laughs> grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed, if she were naked, then it must have been the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through those clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown there is much a part of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I've forgotten, and only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Yes, she's one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are all these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. 
Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand glorious angels attend to her. And who are these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy who brought meat to her back door. Every girl that met her became her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No, there are those who steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on which it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming in a certain fashion her lovers, but it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And now, but hello, what are all these animals? A cat, two cats, dozens of cats, and all these dogs, why I can't count them, and the birds and the horses. They are her beasts. Did you keep a sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast or bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves, and now the abundance of life that she has in the Father from Christ flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come into its full strength. But there already is uh, joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as this lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. The eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. So the best that Lewis could do is give us a dream of a reflection of a reflection. But even that dim reflection is a wonderful picture that will encourage us to have hope for the future and change the way that we live. Paul had said to the, fathers of, to the followers of Jesus in Thessalonica, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's purpose to do that. Let's encourage one another with our hope of the bodily resurrection. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we are, we are so grateful for your love. Lord, what a, a great love for us that you have, that you would call us your children. And Lord, that then you would make us like your firstborn son, Jesus. Father, we don't take that lightly. We don't take that for granted, Lord. I pray that you would stir in our hearts hope for the future. Lord, that we could... Um, not become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good, but, Lord, that we could be heavenly-minded, that, that we would recognize that whatever we're experiencing here on earth, it is temporary, and that, that we have a tremendous hope in the future with you. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would do such a work in all of our hearts that we could take another step in you towards you today. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.